Jesus came to bless you. Jesus came to this earth to bless us. And if we're not careful, we say, yay, more money, more stuff, healing. See, that's not at the top of Peter's list of priorities as we see the second part of this second sermon this week. Peter says that God raised Jesus from the dead and sends him to bless his people. And he sends him to bless his people by... We'll get to that at the end of the sermon. Kids, listen for it. Why did he send Jesus to bless us? What's he doing? I promise I will tell you. But just just review. Back in in chapter 2, after the Pentecost sermon, after 3,000 are brought into the church, you see a summary of the church that was then on the earth. And one of the summaries was that signs and wonders were being done through the hands of the apostles. And the church was in awe. These are signs of a true apostle. It was the apostles going around being used by God to show forth His glory and to demonstrate the truth of the gospel they're preaching. And this is the first mentioned sign of an apostle that we have picking up right in chapter 3 with going into the temple, seeing the lame beggar who's there begging for alms and Peter grabs his attention, not giving him money, But in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. This man was born lame. He was healed. He's amazed, leaping, praising God, going into the temple for the first time. And the people are amazed because they remember him. They know him. They know he's the man who was born lame. Legs just, you know, not working. They probably had given him coins on the way into the temple. And now he's leaping and praising God. And they're all filled with wonder and amazement. And Peter seizes that opportunity. And we looked at 11 through the first part of of 19 last week, so I'll refer you back to that. And we're going to finish out the sermon uh, this morning looking at verses, again, 19 through the end of the chapter. And we'll see as we look at this part of the sermon, as Peter has, he has really pointed his finger at them and their guilt for for crucifying Christ. And we know that ultimately it was our sin that that crucified Christ that put him on the cross. But he has has shown them their guilt, taking them from wonder to guilt and now showing them forgiveness in Christ. And we ended last week talking about through faith in Jesus having our sins blotted out. It says in, in verse 19, Therefore repent and turn back that your sins might be blotted out. And talked about our sins being erased from our record, Christ's righteousness being written on our record, credited to us. And that's really where we stop. So we'll pick up even there and move to the end of the chapter and see this is the main point that the Messiah and when you hear Messiah think Christ it's the same thing we're used to hearing Christ but that's just the Greek of the Hebrew Messiah so anointed one the Messiah appointed for you is Jesus who brought a full salvation that was prophesied in the Old Testament and that purifies his people The Messiah appointed for you is Jesus who brought a full salvation that was prophesied in the Old Testament and that purifies his people. And the title was simply the Messiah appointed for you. That's what Peter tells his Jewish audience there in the temple as he's preaching the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, look, look first, Jesus gives a full salvation and Peter has turned to the application of of the gospel and calling them to faith and repentance. And he says in verse 19, 
What God has, has, he's already said that what God has foretold, he's accomplished in Christ. It was God's will for the Messiah to suffer, die, be raised from the grave. And then in verse 19, he says this, Therefore, I throw therefore to the front, and it really should be. Therefore, repent and turn back that your sins might be blotted out. Trust Jesus that your sinful record could be blotted out, no longer exist, washed away in his blood. We talked about that last week. Forgiveness, one word, forgiveness. Repent and trust Jesus Christ and you will be forgiven. So we have forgiveness, but we also have power. Look where he goes from there. And I point you back. I really would like for you to, if you didn't hear us talk, uh, talk about being the sins being blotted out, I'd love you to go listen to that from last week. But repent, therefore, that your sins may be blotted out. So you have three that's. Repent, therefore, therefore repent, that, that, that. That your sins might be blotted out. Verse 20, that times of refreshing might come from the presence of the Lord. This times this is rest and refreshment that comes from the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. This is power for new life, if you want to put it that way. New life, joy, encouragement, comfort, power. They've turned from grief to refreshing. We tell God convicts us of our sin and shows us our need of a Savior and then shows us the mercy of God available in Christ so that when we turn from ourself and our sin, we turn to Christ. We receive the Spirit as we trust in Christ and then we have this, this refreshment, this relief from our guilt and our conviction and our sorrow. This is the Holy Spirit indwelling and refreshing, giving us powerful spiritual refreshment and power for new life to live for Christ. So you have your sins blotted out, implication, righteousness credited to Christ. That's our justification. Now in our sanctification, growing in grace in this life, we have the power of the Spirit who refreshes and encourages and strengthens us for life here. And then he also, another that, he gives us hope for the life to come. And it says, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until this time for restoring all things about which God spoke through the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. So it's not just, it's a full salvation. It's not just forgiveness and righteousness credited, but it's power and growth and encouragement in this life. And then it's hope for the next life. When he says that he may send, that's talking to the, about the second coming. That he may send the Christ appointed for you. The second coming of Jesus, this is hope for the future. And he's talking to a Jewish audience. This is amazing. He's standing in the temple preaching the gospel about Jesus. He's in the very city where Christ was betrayed and crucified. The very city where these apostles were hiding in fear for their life. Until Christ appeared to them and scared them to death and convinced them that he was raised from the grave and spent 40 days with them. And now Peter and John are out and Peter is bold as a lion to preach the gospel. To tell them that Jesus is the Messiah they missed. Jesus is the Messiah they crucified. But Jesus is the Messiah they're looking for that brings a full salvation. And if they will repent, if they will turn and trust Jesus, all of their sins will be forgiven. They will have times of refreshing from the Lord, power in this life, and they will have hope for the next life because He's coming again. God will send the Christ appointed for you so that you can have hope that goes past this life. 
That's good news. I mean, the, the Jews were looking for the Messiah to come. And they were looking for what the way he's coming the second time. They were looking for this conquering king who would, you know, put Israel back in the center and wipe out their enemies. And he's saying, he is coming again. He will forgive you. He will save you. He will empower you. He will use you. And he will come again for you. God will send the Messiah appointed for you. And look what it says. It's very interesting. It says that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, the Messiah, appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things. So in other words, he is going to remain in heaven. He is going to remain seated at the right hand of God the Father until the time for the restoration of all things. We know from our studies previously in talking about Hebrews 10 and 1 Corinthians 15 that it says he will remain seated until all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet. Heaven must receive him until the time of restoring, until the creation's pristine character is restored, until that final and complete restoration, Jesus will remain in heaven. And then he will come back according to the word of God. And it says, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. And you think of Isaiah and other Old Testament passages that talk about new heavens and new earth, coming of the righteous one, dealing with sin. Jesus is going to remain in heaven and remain seated until all of his enemies are made a footstool for his feet, until the time for restoration of all things has come. So there's hope for not just this life, but for the life to come. I could spend a lot more time on that, but I have a different purpose this morning. We've talked a lot about these things in the past, but uh, I want to move on from that. But, but he brings a full and free salvation. And my simple question is, are you trusting in this Jesus? The one revealed in the Gospels, the one predicted by the prophets, the one we'll see was predicted, predicted in the one who fulfills the Old Testament. That's where Peter takes them next. He not only takes them to Jesus giving a full salvation in 19 to 21. It says, number two, my second heading is Jesus meets the Old Testament expectation in verses 22 to 25. Moses said this, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me, from your brothers, you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. That comes from Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. And Peter is saying, the prophet that was to be raised up, the one that was to come, the one to whom you must listen is Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. It is all about Jesus. That's what the ladies are studying in Genesis. Seeing Jesus in Genesis and how Genesis foreshadows and predicts and pictures Jesus. The prophet, he says, God will raise up a prophet. And you know, Christ fulfills all of the three anointed offices of the Old Testament. Prophet, priest, and king. When we're talking about our full salvation that we have in him, that he's attained that first section, that first heading, that's as our priest. 
our high priest. Now as our prophet, Moses said, and also we'll see as our king. But the Lord will raise up for you a prophet among your brothers. And you must listen to him whatever he tells you. Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord and not do what I say? Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus fulfills the predictions of the Old Testament. He goes further. He doesn't stop with Moses. He says, And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim, interestingly, these days, it says. So the prophets from Samuel alone proclaim these days, those days when Peter was standing there, the days of the Messiah, the days of his salvation, which continue until now, by the way. But it says all of the prophets... See, this wasn't a plan... The church wasn't a plan B. The church wasn't a... Oh no, let's do something different. It was foreordained and predicted in the Old Testament and in all the prophets. And Peter says, all of the prophets who prophesied spoke of these days. So Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy. You think, you know, what is he doing? Law and the prophets. You hear that kind of language a lot. He's showing these Jewish Jewish people that Jesus is the Messiah they should have trusted. Jesus is the one they should have expected. Jesus is the one that fulfills all of the Old Testament prediction and prophecy and type and shadow and picture. The law and the prophets testify to Jesus. The entire Old Testament gives testimony that this Jesus, this Messiah, who died, yes, but who was raised from the grave and now offers forgiveness and power and reconciliation with God and hope for this life and the life to come. This Jesus, you people, you Jewish people, and by extension through them all the way to us, same gospel, is your Messiah, is your Savior, is your Christ. And look, he goes all the way back to the covenant with Abraham. So not only did Moses uh, predict and, and the prophets talk about, but it's even in fulfillment to, the, to the, the Abrahamic covenant. He says, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring or in your seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. And Paul makes it clear in Galatians 3 that the seed there is Jesus. That Abraham's seed to whom the promises were made is Christ and those in Him so that you being a Gentile when you trust in Jesus go read Galatians 3, I don't have time. You are the seed of Abraham. You are the children of Abraham. But the the Abrahamic covenant and the Abrahamic promise and the seed promise there is pointing to Jesus and fulfilled in Jesus. And he's showing that to his Jewish audience and telling them also that the salvation that Jesus brings is for more than just you. It's for more than just the Jewish people. I don't know about you, but I am really glad about that. Because I was not Jewish. Nothing Jewish in my family. But the Gentiles, look what it says in in there. It says in verse 25, And in your seed shall just the Jews be blessed. All the families of the earth be blessed. 
All the families of the earth have this gospel brought to them. Revelation 5 and fulfillment says that there will be people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language around the throne praising God. How? Gentiles grafted into all the Israel's promises and made one new man in Christ. There's not a separation between Israel and the church. Jew and Gentile. One new man in Jesus. In you and in your offspring, in Jesus, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. One application, one takeaway. Behold, Bible Christians. Know your Old Testament. It's all about Jesus. You rightly understood the, understand the Old Testament. It is about Christ and His salvation. He said that to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24. He showed them how all, it all was about Him. And we had a sermon series based on that. He's telling them Jesus is your Messiah, the one prophesied, the one predicted, the one in type and shadow and prophecy and fulfillment in the Old Testament. He fulfills the covenant made with Abraham. He is the subject of all of the prophets. He is the one Moses, Moses predicted. He brings you this full salvation. There is one plan of redemption and it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The seed of Abraham. And you benefit by trusting in Him. Well, look at how he finishes that when he's talking about the Abrahamic covenant. He says, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. How? Shall be blessed how? What is the blessing He's talking about? Look what He says. Jesus turns His people. So Jesus gives a full salvation in verses 19 to 21. Jesus meets Old Testament expectation, verses 22 to 25. And in verse 26, Jesus turns His people from their sin. This is the blessing I didn't say up front. But look what it says in verse 26. God, having raised up His servant, Messiah, Jesus, sent Him to you first. You know the Gospel, Romans and other places, is to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Right? Sent Him to you first to bless you by, here it is, turning every one of you from your wickedness. He came to bless you by turning you from your evil deeds. Turning you from your sin. Turning you from your wickedness. This is the blessing not many people like to talk about. But it's primarily on Jesus' mind. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Disobedience is a work of the devil. It's the reason he had to be crucified to pay for our disobedience, our sin. And Jesus was sent and raised up and sent to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. The gospel has come, like I say, all the way to Swansboro. And he's come to bless you, the Jewish audience hearing him and everyone who will trust him by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Notice there's nothing in there about health, wealth, and prosperity. I'm not saying that's not coming. And pure, purely in the new heavens and new earth. 
But the blessing that Jesus came, the preeminent reason He came was sin and to deal with sin. And He comes in to turn us from our sin, from our lack of faith in God, from our lack of trust in God, from our lack of love of God. To bless us by turning us from our sin, by granting us repentance. Well, it would be a good idea, sin. so we're talking about He came to turn us away from sin, to maybe spend one minute talking about what sin is, right? How do we know what sin is? It's not just by a bad feeling. It doesn't feel right. It must be sin. Well, sometimes righteousness won't feel right to you, so that's not a very good indicator. The way we know what sin is, summary, big picture, Ten Commandments. That's why the law was given, right? To show us what righteousness is and therefore in contrast to show us what sin is. The law is profitable to serve as a mirror. When we look into the law, if you've not come to faith in Jesus and you look at the law and the Spirit really opens your understanding to get that, you'll see how far short you fall of righteousness. So the law serves as a mirror to show us our problem, which is sin. It it serves in society to restrain evil. Right? And then it serves as a guide to the believer, not to save us. We cannot be saved by keeping the law. The law has nothing to do with our justification and everything to do with our condemnation. Because we fall short of it, of the righteousness of God outlined in it. But once we are a believer and reconciled to God, it shows us what a righteous life looks like and how to live a life that glorifies God. We're not left to see if it feels right or have some burning in the bosom. There's an objective standard for righteousness. God has not done away with His commandments. And in fact, in 1 John, He says the love of God is keeping His commandments. The love of God is not defined as a feeling. Loving God is defined as love is joyfully obeying Him. It reveals what is pleasing to God. And the, 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 the catechism, and a lot of catechism, this is just a summary of what the Bible teaches, said that sin is any lack of conformity to Any lack of measuring up to or transgression of the law of God. Not doing the sins, not doing everything we should do according to God's law and doing what we shouldn't do according to God's law. That is what sin is. So, quick review. Can you name all Ten Commandments? I'm not just, don't start blurting them out. It's a rhetorical question for your benefit. Can you even name them? And I really don't care if you get them in order, but you really kind of should get them in order. But let's let's review them a little bit. And, and I'll just start at the top. The very first commandment. Anybody want to tell me what the first commandment is? Summary, if you want to. No other gods before me. In my presence. No other gods. To worship and serve the true and living God. To keep Him most important in your life. To draw from Him your purpose, identity, joy, direction. Primarily Him. He's the one you live for. He's the one you serve. To have no other gods. Is there anything else you value more highly than you value God and that you're pursuing harder than you're pursuing God? That would be an idol. That would be a replacement for God. It doesn't have to be a little statue that we make and bow down to. I mean, lots of things have been idols in my life. Cars. I mean, come on, guys. Cars have been idols. It can be guns. Especially in today's climate. 
It can be people. Your baby will strive to be your God. Grandchildren are really bad about being God. Grandparents are really bad about letting them too. <laughs> no, teasing. I'm going to get in trouble with that. Only one God. Serve, serve, love, live for the true and living God. That's just the first one. How about the second one? No images. Shall not make an image and bow down and work. This is not a forbidding of all art. There was art in the temple, okay? But it's forbidding making something that you bow down to and worship, thinking you're worshiping the true and living God. The Israel did it with the golden calf. Exodus 34, I think. Go read that. That's a funny story. Aaron says, I took the gold, threw it in fire, and out came this. He lied. God, What's God doing in, in, in the second commandment? He's determining how he can be worshipped. So you're, you're to have the true and living God, the right God as your, as your God, the only real God that exists, and you're to worship him in the right way. What's the right way? The way he outlines in his word. Not Old Testament, we don't slay sheep and have to, you know, all that. Very simple. That's why we do the things that we do. Very simple. Sing and read and pray and preach the Word of God. But God is or organizing the way that He is worshipped. The Bible tells us how to worship God and we're to worship according to His Word in Jesus Christ. And we know our worship is acceptable in Christ. But we don't get to determine how we worship God. When you say silly things like, well, I'm just going to worship Him on the beach today. Stop, you're not worshiping Him because you're dishonoring Him. If you have the ability to gather with His people, don't think you can do otherwise and be okay with that. Because He has ordained corporate worship to take place. We do that together. Now, sometimes we're sick. Sometimes we're, the car breaks. Sometimes jobs go haywire. Sometimes you have to work on something. I get that. But if you have the ability, you're to worship with God's people in God's way. How about the third one? Not taking the Lord's name in vain. That's more than cursing with it. Okay? It would include that. By the way, if you ever use Jesus Christ as a... That's the same thing. I had a customer one time. I was sitting in... I would, I would go work buyers and sell things to them in the wholesale... Uh, business and I was sitting in front of him and something frustrated him and he said Jesus Christ and I said is Lord and he said what <laughs> and just from that little interaction he said you know what you are right I shouldn't be doing that should I I'm sorry I said don't apologize to me <laughs> I was a little sassy I admit it but uh, but not taking the Lord's name in vain okay listen to me it doesn't say unless you're a marine Marines, we get a little casual with our language because that's the culture of the Marine Corps. Let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth unless you're a Marine. That's not what Ephesians 4 says. Okay, I'm off that. <laughs> but it's also taking the Lord's name in vain is take, claiming to be His follower and then living a life that blasphemes Him. Claiming to be a Christian, but living like the world. That's a way of taking the Lord's name in vain. How about remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? You say, well, the New Testament repeats nine commandments and does away with this one. Uh-uh. Sorry. Does not. Certainly modifies it in light of the coming of Christ. And the seventh day Sabbath was certainly fulfilled. But the Sabbath is taught in the New Testament. And the Old Testament. 
God gets one day in seven. We nearly died early on working on church plant thinking we could work seven days a week. Work six and rest one. Still God's pattern. And God has a day of worship. Think about this. And this may examine you a little bit. It examines me. And it's harder when when you have to work on, on Sunday. But rest was a part of worship. And worship was a part of rest on the Sabbath day. Worship should be restful. If it's not, it's not because it's not. It's because our thinking is screwed up about it somehow. But one day, work six, take one off, and that one day is focused on God and you worship God. I'm not going to give you a list for how that should look between you and God. But the New Testament speaks of the Lord's day. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That construction there means it's His day. Possessive. There's one day out of seven that is the Lord's day where He is to be primary over me and over everything else to the extent of my ability. And a big picture, we're to honor Him with our use of our time and with our schedule. He sets the agenda. And it should be our joy. Listen, this is not legalism. He don't love you more if you come to church on Sunday or if you rest. But it's for our good and it's for His glory. That's why we do worship on Sunday. Sunday's the Lord's Day, Day of Resurrection. And it, His worship is to be primary on that day over everything if you are able. And it should be restful if you rightly understand the gospel. Well, I'm going to move on. Honor your father and mother is the fifth commandment. Kids, honor your father and mother. Paul brings that. You said this is Old Testament. And Paul teaches this in Galatians 6. The law, it's, it's applied in the New Testament. It's just in light of Christ's coming. Our love response to God to joyfully obey Him. But Paul says in Ephesians 6, he quotes this and he says it's the first commandment with promise. Kids, honor your father and mother that your life might be long in the land was the commandment. Rebellious young people, obstinate young people, got a rock party. That's strict justice, by the way, and your parents are not going to kill you if you don't honor them, okay? But the commandment says that you are to honor your father and mother, to trust them and to follow them and to obey them as they lead you in righteousness. Now, honoring parents, honoring our fathers and mothers changes after we're out of the house and we're married. You can no longer tell your children what to do. When, when, when your precious daughter gets married to another man, you are giving over headship. You are giving her to him. And you don't give them gifts with strings and all that kind of stuff. But we honor our mother and father still. We just do that differently. Right? But to, to fail to honor our father and mother violates God's word. How about that? We'll finish off the, the last five quickly. Murder. You shall not murder. Nothing about the gospel has changed to say that's okay or any of this, right? Jesus said if you're unjustly angry with your brother, you've broken the commandment. Be reconciled to your brother and sister before you bring your gifts. How about the one on adultery? Thou shalt not commit adultery. In other words, what that's saying is you shall be sexually pure. 
We to avoid everything that runs into the category of this sin and perform everything that, that is opposite of this sin or the righteousness that would be the other side. We are to be sexually pure. Listen to me. Look at me. Today's culture is all messed up. Sex is only sanctioned by God within marriage. One man, one woman. Everything else is violation of this commandment. Everything else is violation of this commandment. And Jesus says, if you look on the opposite sex lustfully, you've broken the commandment. So it's not, it doesn't just wait for the physical contact. It starts in the heart. Just like the anger and murder. Stealing. You shall not steal or take what is not yours. That can include time for your employer. Very little things. I don't have time to keep going much, but false witness and lying. We're to be truth tellers. We're to be givers in opposition of stealing. We're to be truth tellers. And we're not to covet. To set our desire on what is someone else's and to, to try to acquire that or think we should have that. We'd be happier if we had it. Jealous over what other people have. Resenting people because of what they have. Or don't have. Desire Christ and all that He brings. Be satisfied in Him and what He gives. Glorify Him. But you see, Jesus came to set us free from sin. And sin is defined by the commandments. And if we had time, we could spend lots and lots of time breaking out these commandments and talking about all the negatives and positives and all that. But I just want you to see there's an objective definition of what sin is. And Jesus came to bless us by turning us away from violating His law. Jesus came to bless us by purifying us. That's what sanctification is. So that we grow in. We're not, you don't, you don't, you're not justified. You're not converted and immediately sinlessly pure. But you begin being sanctified. What is that? Growing in grace. What is that? Growing in joyful obedience to Christ. Putting off sin and putting on righteousness. Jesus came to bless us by turning us from our evil ways. From our wickedness, it says. And, and look at Titus. Titus says the same thing. Paul writing to Titus. Um, look at this in Titus chapter 2. It says, for the grace, it starts with grace, right? Just like Peter does when he says, you know, grace, and then he talks about obedience in, in 1.13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, not just Jews. Training us. Look what grace, look what the gospel trains us to do. This is what we're talking about and what Peter's preaching in Acts training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. That's not legalism. Legalism is not calling on you to obey. The Gospel calls on us to obey God's Word, to obey God's law, but to do it out of love for our Savior, not in an attempt to save ourselves or sanctify ourselves. He says that, that uh, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now look at this. Who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for 
good works. What is good works? It's joyfully keeping God's word. Obedience to God. It's not just taking cookies to the neighbor. It's a good thing. It's loving your neighbor. But look what it says. Jesus gave himself to redeem us, to pay the penalty for our sin, and to purify us. The old hymn we sing, Be from sin the double cure. Save from wrath. Make me pure. The gospel is not a ticket to make sin okay. The gospel is not a ticket just to make sin not important. Jesus has dealt with the penalty of our sin. He's dealing with the power of our sin. He'll eventually remove it completely for us. But the gospel empowers us to live new and different lives, which are lives of growing obedience to Jesus. What it says right here is grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age waiting for, focusing on the second coming of Christ and knowing that He gave Himself up not only to redeem us, but to purify us. To make us joyful about His glory and loving Him by joyfully obeying Him. So let me just end with asking you a question. How does He do this? How does he purify his people? Does he just get a a lash and get behind you and just whip you until you obey? No. That's not how he does it. I'll give you one word. This is how Jesus purifies his people. Love. Love. He said this, and this is not, he don't, don't picture his crooked finger in your face. And this is not legalism, right? This is love, and this is a description of what happens when we love him. He said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will have everything you want. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I don't know about you, but that's convicting to me because the areas I'm not keeping, I'm not obeying Him, I'm loving something else more than Him in that area, whatever it is. It's mostly self. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In other words, love works obedience in our lives. Love works obedience. The same author in 1 John 4.19 says we love Him implied. We love Him. Why? Because He first loved us. How? Think gospel. Sacrifice of Himself. He came to save us. We love Him in response to His love for us. He's actually come and put love in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, it says in Romans chapter 5. We love Him because He first loved us. And if we love Him, we'll... Obey Him, right? So His love in us and for us produces love for Him. He loved us first by choosing us before the foundation of the world, living and dying for us, the Father choosing us, the Son willing to sacrifice for ourselves, and the Holy Spirit bringing the gospel to us so that we turn and trust in Jesus. See, Jesus brought brought the full salvation Peter is preaching. He blots out our sin. He credits us His righteousness. He refreshes and empowers us. He gives us hope. Why? So that we'll live for His glory. Sometimes, no matter how you say it, some of this generation, if you press them for obedience, all they hear and think is legalism. 
That's not true. Now, if I press you to impress God with your obedience, yes. But obedience to Jesus, he said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He said, he came to both redeem and purify us. All in perfect fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus has fully dealt with our sins and calls us to love Him in return. And listen, He grants what He commands. He works in the lives of His children what He commands. New heart, repentance, faith, love for Jesus. Think about this for a minute. Why? And this is coming, I watched a great video by Brian Chappell this week. Some of this is coming from that, talking about this. But why does sin have power over us? Any sin, whatever your struggle is. Why does sin have power over us? Well, one of the answers is because we love it. If we, if we hated it, it wouldn't have power over us. i got to tell you, horseradish has no power over me. I utterly and completely despise horseradish. I can walk by a table full of horseradish and it can be saying, come have some. And I'm like, are you kidding? You're nasty. To the pit. I don't know what your horseradish is, but you get what I'm saying. I don't love horseradish. So I can't be tempted by it. And illustratively, that helps me see that where I am disobeying Jesus, I'm preferring something else over Him. And it has power over me because I love it. And what breaks my love for it is not my legalistic list. Do better, try harder, be more faithful. It's going back and mining in His grace to me. Mining in His love for me. Mining in His sacrifice for me. Mining in the fact that that thing I'm choosing over Him put Him on the cross. And He died and paid the penalty for me. That it is actually evil in disguise and it will harm me no matter how it feels because it is in violation to His love and His commandments. See, for our lives to change, our love has to change. And the Spirit through the Gospel changes our love so that we now love Jesus and want to live for Him. His love changes our love. And the Gospel is what empowers new obedience. Peter said it in, in one of his epistles. He said, set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to you in Christ Jesus. And be holy in all of your conduct. For the Lord says, be holy. See how he has it flowing out of grace. Obedience flows out of grace. I mean, one of my favorite verses, Acts 2, 8, 8 through 10, is the same thing. It says this. Now look at grace proceeds and grace fuels and grace produces, but obedience is here. 2, 8 to 10. For, I didn't do that. He did that. Um, <laughs> For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, your works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, He did it. We are recreated or created in Christ Jesus for or unto good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God not, God not only planned to redeem His people, He planned to purify His people through the sacrifice of His Son and through the power given through faith in Him, the Holy Spirit, the refreshing, so that we walk growingly in righteousness. Jesus came 
to bless us by delivering us from all of our deception by the world, the flesh, and the devil and establishing us in His righteousness so that we would then walk in righteousness. Gospel produces love for Jesus and flowing out of that comes new obedience. So the Messiah, Jesus, is the one appointed for you and not another. He came to fully deal with the sins of His people, which includes you if you're trusting in Him. That's why He's named Jesus. Name Him Jesus because He will deliver His people from their sins or save His people from their sins. He delivered us from the penalty of sin on the cross by paying the penalty and it is finished. He's delivering us from the power, from from, uh, the practice of it, if you want to put it that way, as He sanctifies us. And someday He'll deliver us from the presence of sin when He comes and we are glorified. So what is the primary way Jesus blesses us? By dealing with our sin and turning us from it. All in fulfillment to the Scriptures. See, the gospel should give us a passion for Christ, love for Christ that manifests itself in joyful obedience to Christ and a hatred of sin so that we want to be free of it and that we are growing in freedom from it. So I call on you this morning to trust and rest in this Messiah, this Christ who is appointed for you, Jesus He's the only one who can bless you by reconciling you to God. He's the only one who can change your heart. He's the only one who can turn you from your sins, which is your major problem in this life. So trust Him. Love Him. Obey Him. He will never, ever, ever lead you astray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, do bless us. To have eyes to see our sin, yes, and eyes to see our need of you. To trust and rest in you alone for salvation. And work in us a new love. A love that is passionate about you, devoted to you, strives in your strength to glorify and obey you. Thank you that you are the one purifying us. It's not in our resources and our strength. But Lord, help us to live in the truth of your grace, to live in the truth of your love, to have our love shaped by your love so that we truly love you in response and are greatly used by you as light and salt in this world. Help us to believe that the way of joyful obedience and the way of obedience really is where our joy is found but not a legalistic obedience, but a grace obedience that is a returned love response to you for your love for us. Work love in us so that we delight in you, so that we obey you, so that we walk with you and lead others to you. Lord, we give you praise this morning and pray that you would both convert and grow in grace your people through the preaching of your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.